We have another fantastic issue this month talking about three critically important articles. The first is the benefits of exercise with an amazing long-term study showing how different degrees of exercise. Well, take a listen, and it's pretty amazing. The next article is on the association between changes in carbohydrate intake and long-term weight changes. And you'll see different carbs have different effects. Finally, an article that's received a lot of attention on a disease that is devastating, Alzheimer's disease. And this was a meta-analysis of the benefits and harms of monoclonal antibodies that target amyloid for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. The results here may surprise you. For our first article, we are going to talk about something that is so critically important to all of us and our patients, and that is exercise. We're going to discuss an article published in Circulation titled Long-Term Leisure Time Physical Activity. That, by the way, is the fancy name for exercise. Long-Term Leisure Time Physical Activity Intensity All Cause and Cause Specific Mortality a prospective cohort of U.S. adults. And to discuss this article with us is Dr. Phil Lieberman, who is a resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Welcome, Phil. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. This is such an important article, and I know how strong you feel about lifestyle medicine. Could you tell us a little bit about the background for this article and why it was done? The authors did this article to measure the effects of vigorous physical activity and moderate physical activity on the reduction of mortality. And when they looked at the current body of literature, they saw that the current studies that were out there were either too short. They only had one measure of physical activity, whether that be a survey or biometric data. And they were not measuring the joint effects of vigorous physical activity and moderate physical activity in addition to measuring the separate effects of them. And so they wanted to fill those gaps. And those are important gaps to fill because this is critically important information. So how do they do that? So uh, they used two large prospective cohort studies, one called the Nurses Health Study, that began in 1976 with 121,701 female participants aged 30 to 55 years old. And another study called the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study that began in 1986 with 51,529 male participants aged 40 to 79 years old. They surveyed them every two years for a period of over 30 years and they collected data such as diet, exercise, weight, substance use, and many other factors. And in specifically when it related to physical activity, they did 15 repeated measures of follow-up leader time physical activity. And they collected the minutes of time spent in physical activity and the intensity of that physical activity being performed in order to produce the results for this study. And that's a big deal because I know that some studies that have looked at this just used retrospective data. They said, how much do you exercise? And someone guesses, and you and I both know if we try to guess 
how we exercised five years ago, that wouldn't be very accurate. So this is incredibly accurate data on an immense number of people. What did it show? So it showed, so we're going to talk about the vigorous group, the moderate group, and the combined group. In the vigorous physical activity group, when compared to sedentary individuals, up to 150 minutes a week of vigorous physical activity had a 19% lower all-cause mortality, a 31% lower cardiovascular disease mortality, and a 15% lower cardiovascular, non-cardiovascular disease mortality. When they doubled that up to 300 minutes a week of vigorous physical activity, they saw a 23% lower all-cause mortality, a 33% lower cardiovascular disease mortality, and a 19% lower non-cardiovascular disease mortality. Over 300 minutes a week, they did not see added benefit from vigorous physical activity. So that's really interesting, but the reality is, and that's impressive, the reality is that most of us don't sustain 70 minutes of vigorous activity. Most of us uh, exercise at what is probably better described as moderate physical activity. And if I recall correctly, that is defined as somewhere between 60 and 80% of your max heart rate. For our listeners, max heart rate is 220 minus your age. Moderate activity is 60 to 80% of that. Vigorous activity is more than that. Or what I usually tell my patients is moderate activity is when you're not talking comfortably. I think it's called the breath test, uh, where you're not unable to talk, but you're also not talking the way you and I are. What were the results for meeting moderate activity levels? Yeah, so they showed that individuals meeting those moderate physical activity levels up to almost 300 minutes a week of that level of activity had a 21% lower all-cause mortality risk, a 25% lower cardiovascular disease mortality risk, and a 20% lower non-cardiovascular disease mortality risk. And then up to 600 minutes, so they doubled it again in the moderate group, they saw a 31% lower all-cause mortality, a 38% lower cardiovascular disease mortality, and a 27% lower non-cardiovascular disease mortality. Now, I'll tell you, Neil, I know what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. If I exercise every minute of the day, <laughs> can I reduce my mortality by 100%? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> May, after 600 minutes, you don't get any additional benefit from moderate physical activity. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So I can take that off my plate. So this is such important information. Phil, when you put this all together, um, what are the clinical implications? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah. So I think the clinical implications are if we can convince our patients to give a few minutes of their time in the day to any form of physical activity on a regular basis, it can dramatically decrease their mortality risk. And I think what this study showed compared to prior studies is that there were no negative side effects from the exercise that they were performing. And not just did they get benefits in mortality, but exercise has positive effects, such as improvement in mood. It can be a social outlet. You can, it can give you the ability to do activities that you might have not been able to do otherwise. And so this is a very powerful modality to improve the health of our patients on a dramatic scale. 
Yeah, it truly is what uh, has been sometimes called the everything pill, right? We don't have something that can improve mood, decrease your risk of cancer, decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and decrease total mortality. It's pretty amazing. It, it unfortunately requires some work. But the, I'll, I'll tell you, the other thing I'd refer our readers to if they want to take a look at this article is figure one, which shows the change in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality with different levels of different numbers of minutes through uh, over a week. And what impressed me here, too, is that, yeah, it's great to be able to do 300 minutes a week of moderate activity, like you said, but you even get a substantial benefit at just 75 minutes a week. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think another thing that impressed me about this uh, research article is that if you're getting any level of moderate physical activity under 300 minutes, just adding a little bit of vigorous physical activity can improve your uh, cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. Great, great points. Dr. Phil Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Next, we'll be discussing an article that was published in the BMJ titled Association Between Changes in Carbohydrate Intake and Long-Term Weight Changes, a Prospective Cohort Study. And let me say, this is an incredibly important article. And joining us to discuss this article is one of the authors, Dr. Walter Willett. Dr. Willett is a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome, Walter. Thank you. Good to be with you. Walter, can you give us a little background on why you all undertook the study? Sure. I think it goes without saying that weight gain is a huge issue in America and actually most of the world for that matter. Uh, when we're in the middle of an unrelenting epidemic where just year after year, the prevalence of obesity is increasing. Uh, there's been, of course, uh, for decades, interest in how diet affects weight gain uh, or weight loss. Uh, but uh, really, the biggest problem is, in fact, the weight gain, because Americans, on average, are increasing their weight about a pound per year, which doesn't sound very much. But if you're starting off at age 20, and of course, people are starting off even before that on their weight trajectory now. By the time they're 50, that's 30 or so extra pounds, and that has huge implications for health and, and well-being in general. And there's been a lot of interest in carbohydrate intake and weight change. And of course, we have extremes of low-fat, high-fat diets being proposed. And there hasn't really, we realized, been a detailed look at the long-term relation between carbohydrate amount and quality and weight change. So that was the background for why we looked at this. That's fantastic. It's so important because while we've heard so much about treating obesity, and I think we've become very familiar with obesity as a chronic disease, we haven't spent as much time as it warrants on how to prevent weight gain. And, and, and this is so important. Can you talk to us about the methodology for this article? Yes, for looking at this question, we use data from our three large cohort studies, the Nurses' Health Study, Nurses' Health Study 2, and Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study uh, for 
uh, this particular analysis, we had about 134,000 people in the analyses. And from uh, actually starting in 1980, we've been collecting dietary data every four years in these cohorts. So we have tremendous uh, longitudinal data on weight change over time. And every four years, we've also been updating dietary information. So we were, in this analysis, we were looking at change in diet and change in weight over four-year intervals, and then putting those together over up to about three decades of follow-up. So there's a, a huge amount of data here, and it allowed us to drill down in a lot of detail, it, uh, the details of carbohydrate intake and foods that contribute to carbohydrates intake. Fantastic. And now what we're all interested in is the results. Yes. Uh, what we found was that carbohydrate overall Intake was not very strongly related to weight change, but the quality of the carbohydrates was very important. Uh, there's a lot of data I could talk about, but just very briefly, we found that high glycemic index, high glycemic load, meaning carbohydrates raise blood sugar substantially related to greater weight gain. Uh, on the other hand, whole grain, high fiber, and total fiber intake were related to less weight gain. And again, the more refined starches or more fine grains were related to more weight gain. We then drilled down to look at this in more detail. Uh, for example, at uh, specific types of uh, vegetables, fruits, uh, other foods. And we found that starchy vegetables were actually related to more weight gain, with the potatoes being uh, the biggest problem, but also peas and uh, and a few other starchy vegetables. And that's important because actually the, the current dietary guidelines in the United States say that we should be increasing starchy vegetable intake. That seemed a little bit surprising given our epidemics of obesity and diabetes. And this showed pretty clearly that increasing uh, starchy vegetable intake was related to more weight gain. Uh, of course, sugar-sweetened beverages are probably the worst offender because uh, they are consumed in such large amounts by such a large part of the population. Uh, one interesting finding was that uh, while there's been a lot of attention to sugar, we actually found per calorie or per 100 grams that refined starch actually had a bit more, a bit greater adverse impact on weight change. And uh, the amount, of course, of refined starch are even greater in our diet than the amount of sugar. So while sugar is certainly not good, only looking at that, keeping our focus only on sugar, leaves out as, uh, probably even a bigger villain in our diets. Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. So, I mean, this sounds consistent with something we've talked about with one of your colleagues, David Ludwig, the carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis. Is this consistent with that? I um... uh, This is consistent with the carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis. Uh, uh, there's conceivable. There's some other pathways. As well, but uh, in fact, just the whole issue of satiety is, I think, very much wound up with this too, because the high glycemic index carbohydrates are absorbed very quickly, and whereas the high fiber, whole grain types of carbohydrates do seem to uh, convey greater satiety, and just even that simple aspect of uh, diet quality is very important as well. But but very consistent with the carbohydrate hypothesis also. So you, you talked about the clinical implications with regard to large policy issues. C 
could you summarize for the the clinicians listening to our podcast what you see as the clinical implications for advising individual patients in just a minute or two? Well, sure. And actually, I might even go back further a step that it's one area we've been working on is physicians in general don't know what their patients are eating. And that's uh, not a good starting point. So we just, uh, actually about 20 years ago, we developed a full screening questionnaire uh, and we published uh, just a few months ago in the Journal of American uh, Nutrition and Dietetics, Jan, uh, this simple screening questionnaire, which we validated. It's about 12 items and takes about two minutes to administer, can be self-administered. So I think that, that uh, one way or another, and this is a pretty efficient way, finding out what, what our patients are consuming is an important starting point. And it's, there's no processing. It's just uh, sort of stoplight kind of answers. And uh, identifying people who are eating perhaps a lot of refined starches, minimal whole grains, uh, that's a really important starting point for uh, discussion with uh, patients now that can lead to a room. It could be lead to group sessions, videos, written materials. There's all kind of branching uh, of ways to transmit uh, information and guidance about a diet. Uh, but it's something that's, it's had to say, sort of been missing in most clinical practices. Well, this is so helpful. It's important information. And thanks for helping us to have direction to help our patients. Dr. Walter Willett, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for putting this on the table. For our next article, we're going to discuss an article from the Annals of Family Medicine titled Clinically Important Benefits and Harms of Monoclonal Antibodies Targeting Amyloid for the Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This is a critically important topic that has received a lot of news. And joining us to discuss this is Dr. Richard Potter who is a resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Skolnick. It's great to be here. Um, can you, th th this article received a lot of attention. Can you go over the background of the article? Why did they do this? Absolutely. This, um, and like you were saying, Neil, this is a very important topic, especially with some of the treatments that are already out there for Alzheimer's disease, not having great evidence in terms of uh, having some efficacy. So there's a lot of buzz around this topic specifically because these are some newer treatments that thoughts have been having some promise. And this basic, this article basically looks at a lot of the studies that have been done out there between uh, some of the Cochrane database reviews and some of the clinical trial uh, registries that are out there. And they wanted to really examine the evidence and see, is there some specifically clinically meaningful benefits in a uh, way that with some of the harms of some of these monoclonal antibody treatments? Yeah, and that's so critically important. And, and the way you just framed it is important for our listeners to understand that there can be uh, statistically significant benefits, differences in, in medications that are not clinically meaningful. So they were focused on this question of, is there a clinically meaningful difference? Because 
MABs that have been targeting amyloid are a new class of medicines, and there's a lot of hope around them because our older medicines were not very effective. How do they go about looking at this? Absolutely. So they, as a meta-analysis, they were looking at Cochrane Central and five different trial registries, and they were comparing the changes in these cognitive function scales. So things like, as we know, the mini mental state exam, among other things for Alzheimer's disease, between these different groups of patients who had received placebo versus patients who had received each of these monoclonal antibody treatments. And additionally, they were measuring what was called the minimally minimal clinically important difference in cognition. I think that's an important thing to emphasize with this article is that what that means specifically is it's the minimal difference in scoring on these different cognition scales that's noticeable by a patient or a caregiver. A critically important concept. So we're not just looking at a number, but we're looking at uh, patient-oriented evidence that matters, what patients and their families notice. And what were the results? Absolutely. So the what they had found through 19 of the different publications they looked at, and this involved over 23,000 uh, total patients looking at eight different antibodies across the board, two of which are FDA-approved lacanamab and aducanumab, and one that is close to FDA approval, donanumab. They found that none of these current, none of the currently FDA approved drugs or donanumab, which is close to approval, exceeded this measure of the minimal, um, minimal clinically important difference, despite some improvement on these clinical scales like the MMSE. And they actually found some potential harms associated with each of these medications. Um, these are referenced as amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA for short, edema or hemorrhage being things noticed on MRI imaging as opposed to the typical follow-up for these medications. Importantly, the number needed to harm, which they had put for each of these medications, on average was around 9 and 13 for edema and hemorrhage, um, respectively. That's pretty amazing. So they didn't find that the medicines in aggregate or individually reached a clinically um, important difference, minimal clinical important difference, the MCID, but there was uh, evidence of harm. And then mm -hmm. the tough question, of course, what does all of this mean for us clinically? Yeah, this is important to contextualize too in, in the context of what medications we have already. For these new monoclonal antibody medications, they mentioned somewhere the figure of 26 to 28K a year required to pay for these medications in addition to regular MRI monitoring to look for evidence of ARIA, E, ARIA, H. And just even that in comparison of what we have currently in terms of treatment for um, Alzheimer's disease, it really seems that we don't currently have some great options with the new monoclonal antibodies, so to speak, for, um, for treatment. Yeah, it was very interesting because I think the original, at least the original lecanemab trial, which we talked about on this podcast, uh, seemed promising when you looked at the 
significant difference over the course of the study and at least one of the cognition scales. But this article put that in perspective with, is that clinically meaningful? And, and it'll be interesting, um, and it'll be a while till we know, because the question, the core question is going to be, will those differences that were detected at 18 months continue to increase over time, in which case it might reach a clinically important difference? Or is that going to stabilize with after the initial difference that we see uh, at 18 months that there's not going to be continued improvement? We just don't know. And right. it puts, I think, clinicians like ourselves, as well as patients who are struggling with a, a very devastating disease in a difficult position. Yeah. Dr. Schoen, just to comment on that a little bit more, too. One of the things that was mentioned in the discussion of the article, too, is that they addressed that question a little bit, too. If doing a longer study with these monoclonal antibodies would, 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 would yield better results for the MCID. And, and like we said, over those 18 months, you know, we've demonstrated that maybe not so much. We're not sure, like you said, if there's really a linear relationship with improvement. If we were to extend this over five years, would we even reach that minimally cl minimal clinically important difference? If, because where the numbers are at now in terms of the improvement of the scales, they, if it were a linear improvement, it would take five or six years in order to start seeing some of these benefits. So it's really truly hard to say. And I think one, doing a longer study and two, if we were able to see kind of a head-to-head -head trial between uh, some of the available treatments that we have in terms of some of these scales, I think that'd be mm -hmm. interesting to see as well. That sure would be. Dr. Richard Potter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Skolnick. And that wraps it up for this month. Till next month, stay safe, and we'll look forward to seeing you at NACE.